Beloved congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, right before his crucifixion, the Lord Jesus stood trial before Pontius Pilate. And in the exchange between them, Christ made a profound statement about his kingship and his kingdom. Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? To which the Lord Jesus would reply, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting, that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not of this world. Now, what does Christ mean by these words? Well, in some sense, it means that the kingdom of our Lord Jesus is a heavenly kingdom. It originates in heaven. It came from heaven. It doesn't have the same earthly borders as earthly kingdoms. But at the heart of it, Christ is saying this, my kingdom is of a different character than the kingdoms of this world. It has different priorities. It has different goals. It has a fundamental different way of working. In earthly kingdoms, kings and rulers want to hold on to power at all costs. And they may use any means that they want to hold on to power, things such as violence, propaganda, warfare, all kinds of means to to hold on to their position. Pilate himself was one such king. But our Lord Jesus and his kingdom are different. Our Lord Jesus actively gave up all earthly physical power. Though he was king, he allowed himself to be crucified at the hands of his enemies. Why did he do this? Well, he did it to serve and to save the people of his kingdom. And although he gave up absolutely everything, including his life, by this act, he gives us, his people, every benefit of salvation. And that's what we're going to focus on this morning. So that brings us to the sermon theme, which is this. King Jesus was crucified to give us every benefit of salvation. And here we're going to see in this text that Christ We're going to see Christ, first of all, carrying his own cross. Secondly, declared king to the world. And finally, we see Christ losing everything to give us all things. So, first of all, Christ carrying his own cross. Now, throughout the trial, Pilate had found no guilt in Jesus whatsoever. Though he tried to release him, Pilate eventually gave in to the angry mob who continually called out, Crucify him! Crucify him! So Pilate condemned Jesus to death and then delivered him into their bloodthirsty hands. And crucifixion was now imminent. The soldiers took Jesus away and he went out carrying his own cross to the spot of crucifixion. Now it may have been the entire cross he carried or perhaps only the, um, the cross piece But either way, here's our Lord carrying the instrument of his own execution. What a surreal moment that is. It's like someone 
going to the firing squad, carrying the very gun that's going to end his, his life. And earlier, Jesus prayed that this cup of suffering might be taken from him. But now yet, he continues in obedience to God, carrying his own cross to his death. And so step by step, he came ever closer to his execution. He walked all the way to Golgotha, which was called the Place of the Skull. And this spot was called this, most likely because of the rocky outcropping in that place that that looked like a skull. And so this place, with this particular name, gives us a sense of death. There is a thick feeling of death in the air at Skull Rock. And this all serves a reminder that the wages of sin is death. It also reminds us of the importance of death by crucifixion. Jesus had to die in this particular way. God declared back in Deuteronomy 21 that a person hung from a tree was under God's curse. And we confess in Lord's Day 15 that it has special meaning that Christ was crucified and didn't die in any other way, in another way. Thereby we are assured that he was under the curse of God. For Scripture says, Cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. And so as Christ carries his own cross, we should see more here. Yes, he is carrying his own cross, but he is also carrying our curse. The weight of his own cross is on his shoulders but he's also bearing the weight of our sin. And he may be taking up his own cross, but he's also taking up our punishment for us and in our place. That's what our Lord Jesus is doing as he carries the cross and about to be crucified. And this truth calls us, first of all, to humble ourselves before the Lord. Why was Jesus Christ walking this road, struggling under the load of this beam? It's because he was actively making atonement for our sins. And so Good Friday, it's a day to reflect also on our own sins. You know what? So often, we can take sin so lightly, as if it's no big deal. But look at what our sin cost Jesus Christ. You see, it's my sin, and it's your sin that caused Jesus to carry his cross and go all the way to being crucified on that cross in agony. And in that light, God calls you to nurture in your heart a sincere, godly sorrow for your sin. Think about the sins 
in your life for a moment. The evil desires you want to indulge. The sinful thoughts our minds entertain. The hurtful words we easily speak. The wicked acts we willingly do. Look at what it cost our Lord Jesus Christ. Here He is, suffering under the load of this cross, carrying the weight of God's wrath against our sins. And at Golgotha, they nailed Him to that cross. There He hung in bitter anguish, forsaken by God. Doesn't that call us, doesn't that call me and you to humble ourselves before the Lord and to throw away our sins? A good Friday certainly gives us good opportunity to reflect on our own sin and what it costs the Lord. But that's not all, of course. In light of the cross, God also calls us to, to love and to rejoice. Remember, Jesus Christ is not a helpless victim here, but He's an obedient servant and a willing Savior. God the Father wanted him to die this way, and he willingly did it. God the Son wanted to save us from our sins, and so he lovingly did this. Yes, we humble ourselves before God because of our sin, but we also rejoice in our Lord Jesus Christ because God willingly sent his Son, and Jesus Christ willingly went to the cross to pay for our sins in full. And as you rejoice, let's also learn to follow our Savior in love by living as He lived. See, Christ taught us in many places in the Gospels uh, what the life of a disciple looks like. He told us to deny ourselves, to take up our own cross, and to follow Him. And that's a call to live a life of self-denial. That's a call to submit to God's will, even if it brings pain and suffering. That's a call to publicly identify with Jesus Christ, even if it means ridicule and rejection. You see, the Lord Jesus is first of all our Savior, but He also serves as the greatest example. Take for, exa- uh, yeah, take for instance Hebrews 12, where we, we read these words, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of God. Here he is, enduring so much shame as he walked step by step towards his crucifixion. He was despised, he was rejected, he was insulted, ridiculed, and then crucified. The world had no place for him. But he kept going, also because he had an eye on the joy that was coming at God's right hand. And now that joy is his at his Father's right hand. So Hebrews 12 calls us to keep our eyes fixed on Him and says, do not grow weary or faint-hearted. 
The Lord is the perfecter and founder of our faith. And though we too carry the cross through this life and may suffer because of it, joy and glory lay at the end of the race. That brings us to our second point. Here we're going to also see that Jesus is declared king to the world. Now, when he came to Golgotha, the soldiers nailed Jesus' feet and hands to the cross, and they crucified Jesus between two other criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And over the next few verses of our text, uh, the, uh, the Apostle John focuses on the sign placed above Christ. Verse 19 says this, Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. And this statement was written in three different languages, Aramaic, Latin, and Greek. Now, Golgotha lay just outside of Jerusalem. So many people walked by that way, and so many saw the sign hanging above Jesus' head. And one group in particular that took notice were, uh, was the chief priests. They objected to what Pilate wrote, and so they told him, no, don't call him the king of the Jews. Instead, you should write, this man said, I am king of the Jews. Now, what should we make of this episode? Um, the Apostle John spends some time focusing on this inscription. Many commentators believe Pilate did this as a sort of revenge against the Jewish leaders. They had pushed him hard to have Jesus crucified, something he didn't really want to do. So the sign he knew would uh, provoke them back. There might be something to that. However, I think there's something else going on. It seems to me that Pilate's actions with this inscription reveal a nagging conscience on his part. The whole trial before Pilate in John's gospel focused on Jesus' kingship. The very first question Pilate asked our Lord back in chapter 18 was this, are you the king of the Jews? And soon after this, Pilate asked the crowds, do you want me to release you the king of the Jews? The soldiers mocked Jesus, putting a purple robe on him and a crown of thorns. They came up to him and mockingly said, Hail, King of the Jews! Finally, at the end of the trial, Pilate presented Jesus to the crowd and said, Behold your king! And when the chief priests called out, We have no king but Caesar, Pilate handed him over to them. But all throughout the trial, Pilate suspected there was something more to this Jesus person standing in front of him. And so he repeatedly tried to convince the Jews not to crucify Jesus. The Jews replied by saying, according to our law, he ought to die because he has made himself the Son of God. And then verse uh, 8 says, when Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. He entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, where are you from? See, he has this sense that this is no ordinary person standing in front of him. There's something more to him than just a man from Nazareth. And so he even tried to release Jesus after this. Now, Pilate still condemned Christ unjustifiably, and as a judge, he should have never done this. He sinned greatly by sentencing an innocent man to death by crucifixion. 
It seems he can't shake this feeling that there's something more going on here than meets the eye, and that now something terrible has been done. He can't escape this feeling that Jesus is, in fact, a king. So Pilate feels compelled to write what he does. He placed it on the cross, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. And because of this inscription, the chief priests, too, they're confronted with the reality of Jesus' kingship again. No, they thought they were finally done with this Jesus of Nazareth, who had claimed to be the Son of God and the King of Israel. There Christ was, hanging from the cross, about to die. They thought they had him once and for all. But as they look up at Jesus, the message that Christ is King stares right back at them. They could barely stand it, barely even look at it, so they urged Pilate to change the inscription. Pilate refused. You know what? The chief priests were faced with this sort of thing again after Jesus rose from the dead. They thought again, good, Jesus of Nazareth has died. He's dead and buried. He's gone for good. But then what happens? They hear reports that the body was gone, the tomb is empty. And after Pentecost, the apostles began to preach and teach that Jesus Christ is king, doing miracles to confirm the message. The chief priests tried with all their might to get rid of Jesus and his claims to kingship, but they can't avoid it. This message keeps coming back to confront them again and again. And that's what God continues to do in this world. He continues to confront this world with the message that Jesus Christ is king. He confronted all these people who walked by the spot of Jesus' crucifixion. The sign above Christ was written in Aramaic, Latin, and Greek. Aramaic was widely spoken by the Jews. Latin was a language of Rome. Greek was a common language of the day. Everyone who walked by that spot could read that message. Jesus of Nazareth is king. Well, that doesn't mean that everyone then or now accepts that reality. In fact, so many people don't. What they can escape is the message itself. And God continues to do that in this world. Many people don't want to acknowledge that Christ is king. They don't want to put their faith in him or submit their lives to him. But even so, God keeps declaring this message to the world. He confronts people's unbelief with the reality that Jesus is Lord of all. And you know what? Most often, he uses Christians, his people, to do that. And as you live consistently as a follower of our Lord Jesus Christ, as you testify about him with your words, the world will be confronted with that declaration that Jesus is king and he is ruler of this world. And so there will always be this nagging sense in the hearts of those who do not acknowledge the Lord that God is really there 
and Christ is really king. And one day, this nagging sense will become a reality when Christ returns. And when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven, then every knee will bow before him. And every tongue of every person on earth will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So let us now acknowledge that in our own lives too, that Jesus Christ is indeed King. He's not only King of the Jews, He's King of the whole earth. Acknowledge Him now. Turn to Him now. Confess His name now. If you don't, God will continue to confront you with this reality. He will not let it escape you. But if you do confess that Jesus is Lord, if you do believe in Him, then you will also by His grace receive His salvation. That brings us to our last point. Now, the reality of Jesus' kingship continues to be revealed in the last part of our text. Now, that might sound strange at first. Here we have this little event of the soldiers dividing Jesus' clothing. There doesn't seem to be anything king-like in this at all. And to be sure, what happened here was downright humiliating for, for Christ. These soldiers took all his clothing. And so the Lord, as he was crucified, as he hung there, he just was exposed to the whole world. But looking at the details show us something else going on. The soldiers who crucified criminals would commonly take any spoils they could, in that sense, there's nothing extraordinary here. However, what is unique about this situation is that it fulfills this Old Testament Scriptures. When the soldiers crucified Jesus, they took his articles of clothing, divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier. But then they came to the tunic, which was an undergarment worn under the cloak, and this seems to be the prize piece because it was well made. The tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. And so rather than tearing the tunic, or ruining it, they cast lots to see which of the soldiers would get it. And this action of the soldiers especially fulfilled the words of Psalm 22. Psalm 22 is a psalm of David. It speaks about a righteous man suffering greatly at the hands of others. And that entire psalm is filled with language that points ahead to the crucifixion of Christ. It begins with that well-known cry, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Words spoken by Jesus on the cross. The psalmist goes on to cry out, All who see me mock me. He trusts in, Lord, in the Lord, let him deliver him. Words spoken by others to Jesus while on the cross. Then it adds, they have pierced my hands and my feet. We sang that as well. And finally, we have the words that point ahead to the end of our text. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. See, these soldiers did this to the Lord Jesus, and they had no idea they were fulfilling these ancient words of Scripture. 
And all of this together confirms that in His crucifixion, with all the events surrounding it, Jesus is showing He is the Christ. God is showing that Jesus is the Savior of the world, the one He promised. The whole message of the Old Testament was that God was going to send the Savior. And He gave us endless descriptions and pictures of what this Savior King would look like. That includes David's words in Psalm 22. And over and over again, the life and death of Jesus fulfills that picture perfectly. And so God is declaring to all of us, Jesus Christ is the one. He's the righteous sufferer. sufferer. He's the promised son of David, the king of Israel. I promise to send. And this also might be hinted at with the detail of the unripped tunic. You know, it's interesting when you read the Old Testament, there are instances in the Old Testament where the tearing of clothing representing the removal of someone's kingdom. For example, in Psalm 15, Saul turned to go from Saul, but Saul grabbed the skirt of his robe and it tore. And in response, Samuel, Samuel said to him, the Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day. Then in 1 Kings 11, the prophet Ahijah tears his new garment into 12 pieces, symbolizing the division of Solomon's kingdom. With the Lord Jesus, no one tears his robe. It remains intact. And while we don't want to read things into the text, it might be another little detail signaling the enduring nature of Christ's kingdom. It will never be torn away from him. And in any case, the dividing up of Jesus' clothes shows us what kind of king he is. He's a king who serves. He's a king who gave up his life completely to save us. These are the very last possessions of Jesus on earth. And yet he lets them go. It emphasizes the truth of 2 Corinthians 8 verse 9. You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. Christ became poorer than poor. He lost everything. He lost his own clothes. He did this in order to make us rich. That doesn't mean the riches of money, but true riches. And the soldiers taking the spoils from Christ gives us a small picture of this, even if it's somewhat skewed in them. Here we see them gaining from the death of Christ. Right? Christ became poor, they gained from his loss. And that's especially true what happens to us. We gain eternal riches through Christ's poverty. We receive every benefit of his death. And although we don't receive Christ's physical clothing, He still clothes us. Christ clothes us with a robe of righteousness through His obedient death. Galatians 3 says, You have clothed yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ. So the Lord Jesus also covers all of our shame, the shame that comes from our sin. 
He bore our shame in his own death so that he might cover you. He clothes us with immortality, never-ending life. It's through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ that we receive these things. It's in him that we receive every benefit of salvation. Amen.